We can't seem to get away from bad news and depressing stories on this show, but we're rolling with the punches as they come, I suppose. Last week, we remembered Alexei Navalny, whose sudden death in prison after more than a thousand days behind bars is one of Russia's most terrible domestic events in recent memory. This week, to mark the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Moscow's brutal ongoing war to seize more territory, I spoke to the author of a book about how Russia's war came to Ukraine. So let's hear from journalist Christopher Miller about his book, The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. In accordance with Article 51, Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, sanctioned by Russia's Federation Council and in execution of the treaties on friendship and mutual assistance with the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic ratified by the Federal Assembly on February 22nd of this year, I have decided to conduct a special military operation. Its purpose is to protect the people who have been subjected to abuse and genocide by the Kyiv regime for eight years. To achieve this, we will work toward the demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine and toward bringing to justice those who have committed numerous murderous crimes against civilians, including citizens of the Russian Federation. Our plans do not include the occupation of Ukrainian territories. We do not intend to impose anything on anyone by force. Howdy folks, I'm Kevin Rothrock, the host of the show, and Vladimir Putin uttered those words you just heard exactly two years ago in a televised national address offering a justification for the invasion of Ukraine that has proved to be his regime's most vicious lie. As you're probably aware, there are no definitive numbers on the loss of life caused by Putin's decision to invade and by the obedience of Russian soldiers who have done the Kremlin's killing. Independent journalists have verified the deaths of almost 45,000 Russian soldiers, but the actual number of Russians killed is higher still. Last August, for example, U.S. government officials told the New York Times that Washington put the number of killed Russian soldiers at 120,000 men. Meanwhile, the number of Ukrainian soldiers killed is a closely guarded secret, but U.S. officials told the New York Times that they estimated close to 70,000 killed. And remember that this was in August 2023. And this doesn't include the civilians killed, particularly in Mariupol, where Human Rights Watch researchers calculate that more than 10,000 people were killed in Russia's assault. The researchers say this is most likely a significant underestimate of the total number of people who died during this period. To mark the fact that Ukraine has endured two years of Russian invasion and to revisit how this war unfolded, I spoke to Christopher Miller, a journalist at the Financial Times who's reported from Ukraine since 2010, working previously with outlets like Politico, BuzzFeed News, RFERL, and others. Last year, he released a book titled The War Came to Us, Life and Death in Ukraine, and he was kind enough to join the Naked Pravda to discuss it. So sit back for my conversation with Chris and check the description of this episode for a hyperlink to purchase a copy of the book for yourself. How did you decide which moments, which anecdotes to include in this book? Like, is there a guiding principle here? Or did you have different reasons for different stories? What's the, the logic here? There was a broad guiding principle at first when Bloomsbury, my publisher, first approached me about the book in January of 2022. So even before the full-scale invasion, the publisher had reached out to me and said, We've been asking around about potential authors for a Ukraine book that we want. Everybody's talking about Ukraine. There might be this invasion. And several people have, have mentioned your name. You know, do you have an idea? Do you want to write a book? And I said, you know, I've, I've always wanted to. I have a broad idea. You know, wh what I told them is that, you know, I've, I've read a lot of Ukraine 
books that are more academic in nature or Ukrainian history books, right? Things written by Anne Applebaum, Tim Snyder, who else? Uh, Sergei Blocky, of course. What I thought was missing from the sort of canon of Ukraine books was something that was more narrative-driven and something by a journalist. The things that I like reading as a correspondent, as a foreign correspondent, are books by journalists who have been you know, deeply embedded in a, a place, a culture, a war. Books like Rivertown, which was written by Peter Hessler about his time in China. He was actually also a Peace Corps volunteer like myself. That had a big impression on me when I was in, in Ukraine more than a decade ago. Books like The Forever War by Dexter Filkins. These are writers, journalists who had spent a significant amount of time in a place, were deeply involved in covering events or culture in these places. So broadly speaking, I wanted to write a book like that, that had a narrative that had several characters that you meet, that you follow throughout the book, but that also covers major events that are shaping these people, shaping their country. And then what I told the publisher and what I had you know, thought about in writing this book also was that I have a, an interesting story, I think, to tell and how I got to Ukraine, how I came to know the place and, and Ukrainians and the people here and how I came to be a foreign correspondent. And I thought that that might be a good vehicle to tell the story of all of these major events in Ukraine's modern history and how the country and its people have been shaped during revolution, annexation, war, you know, two invasions. And so I took that to the publisher and said, you know, why don't we cover more than what is happening right now? There are going to be a lot of books about what is happening if Russia does invade. And again, we were talking about this just before the full-scale invasion, so we weren't exactly sure what was going to happen yet. And they liked the idea. And then I said, okay, now I've got to go back to work. And, and the invasion happened. So I think some weeks went by and it was probably late. I think it was late March when we finally agreed on a book deal and ironed out the details, those being that it would not only cover the current events and what I was reporting on as a correspondent reporting on the full-scale invasion, but how we got to that point. And they thought that that was a good idea because they agreed that there would be a lot of books about what was happening. This is the first major invasion and land war in Europe in decades. No doubt there would be many books coming out about what was happening, but none of them would be written from, I suppose you could say, the perspective of someone who was here well before it began. So that's how I decided what the book would be about. Then, I guess to, to answer your question with a little bit more specificity, it was down to, okay, who do I include in, in terms of characters? Which events are the most important events that help tell this story? And, you know, really, I, I started very narrow. I zoomed into where it all began for me, which I thought would actually be a good place to start. Pre-revolution, pre-war in little Bakhmut, still called uh, Artyomovsk, its Soviet name, back in 2010 when I arrived in the country. And I thought, me arriving in the country would sort of be a way of kind of planting the reader there with me. Like, let's start from the beginning, right? So I really did just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to try to write this chronologically and write in the most important events, keep out those things that I don't think are necessary or write in, write in everything and then later cut. I think I, I kept in a lot more than I cut, but 
ultimately kept in quite a lot in order to show the change and the progress that I think has occurred. There are the obvious events that will stand out to you and to readers, the Maidan revolution, the uh, annexation of Crimea, the beginning of the covert invasion and war in 2014 in the Donbass, and then the major events that I think transformed that from this attempt at destabilization into a war, you know, the battle of Donetsk airport, I think really signaling that change. And then of course, the downing of MH17. Chris is referring here to what is known as the first battle of Donetsk airport, which took place in late May 2014 between the so-called Donetsk People's Republic and Ukrainian government forces. The airport was destroyed in this battle and another round of fighting in September 2014, and it's been controlled by pro-Russian forces since 2015. The airport was built in the 1940s and remodeled ahead of the Euro 2012 soccer tournament. In 2013, during its last full year of operation, it handled more than a million passengers. Chris also mentioned Malaysia Airlines Flight 17, the passenger flight that departed from Amsterdam and was shot down by Russian-controlled forces on July 17, 2014, while flying over eastern Ukraine. All 283 passengers and 15 crew members were killed. On November 17, 2022, following a trial in absentia in the Netherlands, Two Russians and a Ukrainian separatist were found guilty of murdering all 298 people on board the plane. The Dutch court also ruled that Russia was in control of the separatist forces fighting in eastern Ukraine at the time. The Russian government, for its part, has denied involvement in shooting down the airplane and offered explanations for the incident that have varied over time. You know, events like those could not be left out. What was left out and was a decision that I made together with my publisher was the large span of time between mid-2015 and, let's say, 2019, that being because the war at that moment was predominantly a simmer with a few flare-ups here and there, but the front line was frozen. Not many people were paying attention to Ukraine because, you know, events had, had really cooled and the world's gaze was elsewhere. Even I left for a period of time here and there to go cover other events. That's not to say it wasn't an important period of time. There were a lot of reforms made in Ukraine, major steps toward its advance toward European integration and hopefully here soon-ish, you know, EU membership. But that, you know, something had to, something had to be cut because otherwise this was going to be a book that was 500 or 600 pages long. Already it's 370, I think. So... I summed up that period of time sort of at the end of what was the third part of the book and the beginning of the fourth part of the book. And then it picks up again at the start of the invasion. And I do step back to explain how Zelensky came to power, the craziness of that 2019 election and the runoff between him and the incumbent at the time, Petro Poroshenko, before getting into the current invasion and war. You said before that, you know, you had to kind of hone in on the beginning, and you ended up with your own beginning in, in these events. And I wonder if you could kind of walk through for listeners the moment that you realized you weren't just some kid kind of on a Peace Corps mission, you know, exploring a foreign land, and that you were actually witnessing something that all these books would be written about, that you were witnessing history. You know, as a Peace Corps volunteer, I had very limited access to the internet. I was not a, a working journalist during the 27 months that I was a Peace Corps volunteer. I had been a reporter in Portland, Oregon prior to doing the Peace Corps, but had essentially pushed pause on my career to join the Peace Corps and come out to Ukraine for 
a two-year adventure. I obviously did a lot of writing. I kept journals and an online blog, and I wrote some freelance cultural pieces during that period of time. But I never thought that I was working as a foreign correspondent, let alone in the middle of something of great significance that would, you know, shape the global order or anything like that. Even after I finished Peace Corps and I moved to Kiev and started working again as a journalist with my job at the Kiev Post and some freelancing for other various Western outlets, I was just having a good time. I thought I was just extremely lucky to be in a really fascinating place that was still very new to me and really interesting. I was learning something new every day, meeting terrific people. I loved living abroad. You know, at the time, my girlfriend had become my wife and she was living here with me. So it wasn't just work that was new and fascinating. We had this really interesting life as expats in Kiev at that time. And this was 2012 and, and 13. And I was, you know, sort of just breezing along and, you know, working mostly nine to five, nine to six, kind of getting back into the swing of things after being out of reporting for a couple of years. Then in autumn of 2013, things, you know, took a turn. And that's when the Maidan protests happened. And even after the first attack on the Maidan, it still wasn't clear that this would transform into anything resembling a revolution. You know, the, the protests were small, hundreds, you know, maybe maybe several thousands at first. I remember, and uh, I, think I, I think I mentioned it in the book, writing a story with my colleague Oksana Gretsenko at the Kiev Post after a couple of weeks of protests and then fizzling out and sort of posing the question in the article, what is this uh, dying street movement going to do now that it looks like it's going to have to move off the streets? How is it going to apply pressure on Yanukovych? And then, you know, more violence happened. The protests grew. I think it was early December when suddenly there were hundreds of thousands of people on the street. And I was one of the only Western journalists in Kiev covering this. And at the time, if you remember, that was uh, around the time of the Sochi Olympics. And all of the correspondents who were Moscow-based or many of them who were London-based with experience in Russia or Eastern Europe had all gone to Sochi to write about the run-up to the Olympics and Russian repressions. And they were keeping an eye on Ukraine, but sort of writing the story from either Sochi or having their London news desk do the coverage. So I started fielding requests from editors to help freelance for their newspapers. And that's when I, you know, I first really, I think, began to think, okay, this is a big deal. I'm now writing for major news outlets, you know, got to put on my, my serious newsman cap now and do the real work. And I think certainly by the end of January, after the, the first series of deaths on, uh, on the Maidan, you know, I had started to realize that this was, this was a major, a major event. If, if not globally, then certainly in Europe, that feeling only intensified when 70 Plus, people were killed on February 18th, 19th, 20th. More than 10 years ago now, one evening in late November 2013, students, activists, and journalists began to gather in the center of Kyiv. They took to the streets after the Ukrainian government decided to suspend preparations for signing a political association and free trade agreement with the European Union. 
The scope of the protest gradually widened, with calls for the resignation of the president and the prime minister. A large, barricaded protest camp occupied Independence Square, or Maidan Square, in central Kyiv, throughout what would become known as the Revolution of Dignity, or the Maidan Revolution. In January and February 2014, clashes between protesters and riot police resulted in the deaths of more than 100 protesters and more than a dozen police officers. The revolution culminated in the ousting of President Viktor Yanukovych, the return to Ukraine's 2004 constitution, and the outbreak of the 2014 war with Russia, when Moscow annexed Crimea and propped up two separatist proxy states in eastern Ukraine. But I think I was also still young and naive enough at that point to not really grasp the magnitude of what was happening. And I say naive almost in a good way, because had I, you know, been fearful of what was happening on the square with all these people dying around me and feeling less invincible than I sort of felt as a 20-something reporter, I might not have been there. Is the nature of the reporting you do or have done in Ukraine is it sort of a young man, young person's game? It helps. It helps to be, you know, um, able to run around and duck and dive sure. and, 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 you know, be agile and... and uh... But is it mostly, is it is it like 20-something, early 30-something childless people or are there many middle-aged no, pa- parents out there? I think it runs the <laughs> gamut. I think it runs the gamut. Now, I would say okay. at that, that moment, you know, you know a lot of the people who were on the Maidan covering this story, I would say at that time I was in my late 20s. Most of us, I think, were late 20s, early 30s. A lot of the names who you know who still are on this beat alongside me, the Sean Walkers, the Max Seddons of the world, the Andrew Roths, who else? Dan Pelashuk. You know, we were all roughly the same age, give or take a couple of years. So, you know, we were, yeah, late 20s, early 30s, I would say still, you know, on the younger side and earlier in our careers. But there were seasoned, you know, more veteran correspondents coming in because this had become a big story. So, Now, you know, at that point, when people were dying in the streets, papers were sending their big shots. The TV networks were sending their big shots, right? On February 20th, after 70 people died, I was on the top floor of the Hotel Ukraina, overlooking Maidan with Nick Payton Walsh, who was a veteran CNN correspondent, you know, talking to Anderson Cooper, who obviously is a veteran TV journalist. So the world was paying attention you know, very senior experienced correspondents were either here or covering the story from wherever their respective offices were. I think it really hit home in two other moments. I think arriving in Crimea was startling because it wasn't protesters and police that I ran into when I arrived. The first people I saw were soldiers and very clearly Russian soldiers. Regardless of them being unmarked, it was very clear the way they carried themselves, how they were dressed, the presses in their uniform, the weapons that they had, that these were Russian soldiers. And that was terrifying because we didn't know what was going to happen. And coming from a place where violence had just broken out in the way that it did, seeing people with high-powered rifles was was a bit terrifying. And then, of course, it was a face-off between two militaries. I was out at the Belbek Air Base. I was, what's the other one? Outside of Simferopol, Privolna, I think, was another one where there was a pretty intense standoff between uh, Ukrainian soldiers and and Russian soldiers. You know, I would say that Crimea marked an escalation, but it did surprise all of us in the end when Russia managed to forcibly annex this place almost without firing a shot. There was still blood and death, and there were horrific kidnappings of Crimean Tatars, for example, but it was not a war yet. The real moment for me when I think 
you know, I realized the seriousness of the situation was May 26th, 2014, the fighting at Donetsk Airport and getting caught up in that fighting, you know, very, again, naively running into the, the heart of the battle, thinking, you know, I need to be as close as possible to report on this, to witness this, and then finding myself almost unable to get out safely, and then seeing the bodies stacked up the next day in the Donetsk morgue, you know, that really uh, brought it home for me. And uh, I think from there, I've, I've tried not to take anything for granted. And I think I'm much less naive now. I think, I think I've just, I've seen, I've seen quite a lot since then, things even much worse than those early days in, in 2014 now. And, you know, I know what, I mean, how fortunate I am to have the job that I, that I now have and to do what I'm doing. And I know what's at stake. I'm under no illusion now that this is just, you know, some kind of a uh, job filled with excitement and adrenaline and whatnot. I'm also older. I'm not as young as I as I was when I began doing this, and uh, I'm now just ten days away from from turning forty. Just to refresh your memory, Putin signed legislation formalizing Russia's annexation of the Crimean Peninsula on March 18th, 2014. This move followed several weeks during which so-called little green men or polite people, Russian troops without formal insignia flooded Crimea and seized control before staging a referendum on joining the Russian Federation. To this day, nearly a decade later, only eight countries have recognized Russian sovereignty over Crimea. Afghanistan, Cuba, North Korea, Kyrgyzstan, Nicaragua, Sudan, Syria, and Zimbabwe. I imagine you have a lot of, a lot of young journalists, whether they're just arriving in country or they're just getting started, who probably turn to you either for advice or for connections. Have you found yourself changing the nature of advice that you give or have you refined the kind of advice you give to people in this profession what is it yeah you know i think it depends a lot on the person i don't think there's there's a whole lot of like just blanket advice that i give to everyone and anyone i, I think i try to get to know the person or you can I, I feel like i'm a pretty good judge of of, of people and, and character from the moment i sit down with them and have a beer or, or a coffee and i can you know sort of feel out their level of comfort in covering conflict or war or, you know, violent protests. So the advice I would give would probably vary person to person. Generally, the advice that I have given and would give still to younger students who might be at journalism school or looking to become a foreign correspondent is go there. Wherever you're interested in being, whatever you're interested in covering, if it's Eastern Europe, as it was for me, even though it wasn't my decision to begin with, but I, I ended up here. You know, the Peace Corps for me was that moment. I was able to really get to know a place deeply, intimately, to really know the people, to make close friends. It became my adopted second home. And I think if you really want to be a foreign correspondent, I would say don't chase the wars and the conflicts. Those are going to move. I would say focus on a region, a place, a country, a culture, something like that. We were talking a bit about, you know, getting older and kind of generations of journalists and things like that. And a lot of your book, you're describing yourself getting to know these these locals and becoming friends with journalists from like, you know, 14 years ago. And I imagine that the generational politics have changed. Now a lot of these journalists who were up and coming then are now established, just like you. And in addition to now being kind of like established journalists, the politics of Ukraine have changed so much. It is a, whereas back then there was a lot of this, 
this basically partisan politics. And that's now sidelined. Obviously, the wars happened. And so the politics of journalism, I would imagine, are very different. You know, there still is anti-corruption reporting, but, you know, nobody wants to undermine the war effort. And I would imagine sometimes talking about things the government or the state is doing, that becomes somewhat dangerous. Has the nature of the game changed very much, both by getting older and by becoming established and also the you know the nature of Ukrainian politics changing is it a, is it very different now or is it is it just sort of a, the same same thing well i think it might be it, it's different for those of us who are foreigners reporting on this and those and those who are ukrainians um certainly on the ukrainian side my ukrainian journalist friends i think have done their job as they would normally do but their focus has been more war and oriented which means not necessarily critical of the state or their own military. They are focused on what Russia is doing to their country, and and rightfully so, I think. That said, I think that generally a lot of the major television programs, a lot of the general assignment reporters are practicing some very serious self-censorship. You know, they are choosing to not criticize their government, criticize the military, or write critically about anything having to do with their side in this war as not to undermine the war effort and as not to drive a wedge between you know, various parts of society. It's unity that has held this country together through revolution, through the first Russian invasion and war, and, and now this full-scale invasion. And so I understand that. There are also things that have happened that are out of their power. President Zelensky has rolled back some press freedoms and it is now criminal to take certain photos and videos of things, for example, to photograph or shoot video of the air defense while it's working here is a big no-no, right? And I get why. There are security reasons for doing that. Also, there's the national telemarathon, you know, that has been going now for two years. This is the uh, Zelensky-ordered conglomerate of various television news outlets that are all now broadcasting one broadcast. They each get to provide certain hours of content, but it's all very patriotic, completely uncritical of the situation and focused predominantly on Russia's war, its war crimes, you know, what Ukraine is doing it's well. It's literally the same broadcast on different on mm -hmm. different channels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's yep. like you tune like channel five, channel seven, this is the same thing. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The only ones that are not included are Poroshenko's channels because there still remains this pretty serious beef between Poroshenko and Zelensky. So Poroshenko's channels were not invited to be a part of this. So his do their own independent reporting. And you might flick on the TV and, and there could be something that's relatively critical of Zelensky on his channel five or this other outlet called Priami, but it's still softer than it was before. As for foreign correspondence, I think it's for us, it's a matter of priorities. You can look at my catalog of stories and it's predominantly, you know, looking at the challenges that Ukraine faces, the war crimes of Russia. There's a lot of analysis. I wouldn't say it's criticism in a negative sense. It's mostly constructive type criticism and analysis and commentary from people who I think all want Ukraine to win and understand that this is a war that is predominantly one of good versus evil, the evil being Russia. And so that tends to be the focus of most of our reporting. You know, right now, the big stories are 
Ukraine's struggles on the battlefield as it waits to see what the U.S. is going to do in terms of, you know, whether Congress is going to get its act together and pass this crucial $60 billion military assistance bill. The Ukrainians are having to ration their artillery. We're hearing now that there are some units that don't even have artillery shells to fire at the moment. The Russians, meanwhile, are adapting. They're bigger. They've got deeper stocks. They're getting help from the North Koreans. They're getting help from Iran. So we're reporting on all of that. And I think that's both urgent and at times it can be critical. I would say, you know, some of the things that we are writing now were not stories that we could have written two years ago because there just wasn't a whole lot of, I think, criticism early on in the invasion to to be written about when it came to Kiev. And when it came to Zelensky, I think you know, the, the things that, that happened very early on, the, the Ukrainian response, Zelensky's response, were incredible and incredibly brave. You know, now we see more criticism when it comes to him and his personnel decisions. Chris also talked about reporting on the conflict between President Zelensky and former Commander-in-Chief Valery Zaluzhny. We, being foreign correspondents covering this story, have gotten a lot of flack from Ukrainians who say, you're driving a wedge you know, between us and society, you are making it look as though there are, you know, serious disagreements. This could undermine Western support. How dare you? Well, I, you know, I would argue and many of my correspondent colleagues argue, no, what we're doing is writing about a serious event that, yes, could undermine that support or drive a wedge in society, which is why you should hold not journalists accountable for these personnel decisions, but your leadership, right? We are informing you. The job is to inform. And I think some of that has gotten lost in the war for obvious reasons. It's emotional for many people, Ukrainians especially, but not only. They've lost a lot of people, family, homes, entire cities have been razed to the ground. There's nobody here who hasn't been personally impacted by Russia's war. So I get that response. That's only natural. But I think the tide has changed a little bit. And I think people in Ukraine are now a little bit more willing to speak out, speak their mind, to speak out about what their president is doing or has done. It's more common now for me to hear from friends and acquaintances that they aren't terribly happy about how little preparation was done by Zelensky ahead of the invasion. They wish they would have been better prepared. He was largely downplaying the invasion in the weeks beforehand, they say, and I saw that as well being here. Those are just examples of, I think, you know, how the coverage has evolved, what it's like now, how people are viewing it. It does differ, I think, between, you know, foreign correspondents and Ukrainians. But to Ukrainian journalists' credit, if you look at Envy, Novaya or an investigative unit called Bigos Info, or Ukrainska Pravda, these are all the larger independent news outlets in the country. Also, the Ukrainian service of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Svoboda. They have teams that are still doing their job as they did before February of 2022, investigating corruption, exposing it. We've seen the resignation of the defense minister, several people within the defense ministry. A bit of context here. In early 2023, 
Several high-ranking officials in the Ukrainian government stepped down amid corruption scandals, including deputies under Defense Minister Oleksiy Reznikov. In September 2023, President Zelensky also dismissed Reznikov, stating that he believes the ministry needs new approaches and other formats of interaction with both the military and society as a whole. Reznikov was very publicly associated with Ukrainian negotiations with the West for arms supplies, and journalists have linked his ouster to abuses of power within his department, though Reznikov himself isn't considered to be involved directly in this corruption. And that was not because of the work of foreign correspondents. That was because of the work of Ukrainian journalists. So it's not just propaganda. There is some of that. There always will be in wartime. And, you know, but I think it's, it's, it's important to also give credit to the journalists who are still doing their job in a really difficult situation. What would you say to readers or what do you say to readers who might hesitate to pick up a book about Ukraine, about the war in Ukraine, because they're feeling fatigue about news about this war. I don't think I'm inventing this, that there's a lot of talk about war fatigue in the West, maybe even in Ukraine. I imagine they're more tired of the war than anybody, but this is a different kind of exhaustion, obviously. This is the kind of exhaustion where your readers are, are disinclined to even click on a link now, let alone buy a book about this, this conflict. Do you have a message for these people? Well, Ukrainians are tired of hearing about how tired people outside of Ukraine are about the war. You know, Ukrainians are the ones who are experiencing it firsthand. They're the ones that are fighting, bleeding, dying, losing their homes, seeing their cities destroyed. They're the ones who are on the front line of this war that I would argue is not only about Ukraine. It's much bigger than Ukraine. I would say you've got to go pick up a book, hopefully mine, but there are also other good ones that I think are all worth picking up to learn, I think, why this war is important and why it's bigger than Ukraine. What happens here is going to impact Europe. It's going to impact the United States. It's going to certainly influence our adversaries, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea. If the U.S., loses this war. And I think it, it is not only Ukraine's to, to win or lose, it is also um, the EU's and it's, and it's Washington's to also win or lose because we Americans are huge political, financial, military supporters of Ukraine. It is our stocks of weapons that we are providing that are helping Ukraine beat back Russia's invading forces. We have a stake in this. If we back down, if Congress does not pass this critical bill, that's going to embolden China. It's going to embolden Iran, North Korea. There's a lot of talk about Taiwan and what China might do vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan in, in the future. Well, I can tell you that, you know, the people I talk to in Washington, in Brussels, in European capitals say they're watching Ukraine. They're watching our response. If we are unable to help Ukraine, Nobody is going to think that we're going to be able to stop China if it decides to take a stab at Taiwan or Russia if it wants to in the future after building up its army again. It's got its economy on a war footing. It's producing missiles and drones. It's adapting right now. If it wants to go beyond Ukraine, say, attack Moldova, they're, they're going to feel emboldened. They're going to feel that our sanctions weren't strong enough. We didn't provide enough to Ukraine. Why would we provide enough for Moldova to properly defend itself, right? This is going to shape, I think, reshape our global politics, the perhaps the global order, certainly the security of Europe and the United States. You know, there is this axis of authoritarians and despots that is, I think, 
feeling rather strong right now and emboldened by the division in the United States, the debate over whether or not we should provide assistance to Ukraine. Certainly, a Donald Trump presidency would embolden them further. And a lot of them are looking on, you know, just salivating, thinking that uh, their guy is going to get back in into office. And don't be fooled. You know, Trump is viewed by Vladimir Putin, by Xi, by others in the world as an ally, if not a direct ally with whom they can, you know, shake hands and call a friend, then certainly somebody who is going to cause chaos and disorder, which would ultimately benefit them. So I would say, look, pick up my book, pick up other books on Ukraine, because I think there are powerful stories in them, stories of people doing remarkable, incredible things for their country. I think that's relatable. I think to Americans, Ukraine is fighting for democracy, for freedom, independence, all of the things that we say we are all for. You know, these are American values. And, and also because this is something that is bigger than Ukraine. It's about us as well. And we will all be better off if we're all better informed. That's this week's show, ladies and gentlemen. On upcoming episodes, we'll talk about Russian space weapons, gang culture in Russia, the lives of so-called foreign agents, and more. Thank you for tuning in, and please consider making a recurring donation to Medusa to help sustain our work. Until next week.